Welcome to the First Down Rundown podcast, where we give you a holistic view of the world of sports. Whether you're a casual fan or an avid fan, this is the place for you. And this is not Hayden's voice to enter us into the show today. That's right. It's another solo episode with Matt. You'll see that in the title. Uh, and, and that is because Hayden, as, as, a, as a college student normally does, has a great deal of work today. Uh, well, this whole week, really. He wasn't able to record at all. So, so that's why I'm here, um, you know, kind of picking up the slack and, and doing the episode with him while he's not here. Uh, we were going to, if you kind of, you know, we're listening to the last episode and everything, we were going to do a big, you know, NFL kind of state of the union, right? Where are we at with the, with the trades and Lamar and Aaron Rodgers and all these, you know, the, the draft coming up and everything. We decided to push that, obviously, just because, you know, we obviously would both want to be a part of that show. And with Hayden not available to do one uh, this week, then, you know, we, we kind of want to have both of our inputs and be able to kind of bounce things off of each other when we do uh, talk about that NFL news and, and everything that's happened with that. And honestly, honestly, nothing's really happened with that NFL news. Like, it's, it's, it's news because of all the theorizing you know, the, the crazy things that people have put out there and the media is going crazy over what, you know, where everybody's going to go. But but nothing's actually happened yet, right? Aaron Rodgers is still on the Packers and, and Lamar Jackson is still on the Ravens. So, um, yeah, so I think in terms of the two biggest news items, which which are obviously, you know, kind of centered around those quarterbacks, nothing's happened yet. So obviously we want to get our thoughts on it and, and kind of handle how we feel about the situation so far. Uh, but but again, it, it can kind of continue, at least in my mind, it can continue to be pushed a little bit because obviously we'll both have time to, you know, give our opinions on it, what we, you know, how we think things are going down, what we think is going to happen. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's not like we missed our opportunity to give our opinions on what we think is going to happen, uh, you know, kind of in advance of any of the trades actually going down or any of these quarterbacks actually getting deals or whatever it may be. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, there's still kind of time that we have to to do that, right? So so that's why, you know, we're kind of going to wait until we're we're both back here able to kind of get everything together uh, and, and, and do, do that podcast then. Obviously, this is a, a, a tumultuous week. Uh, well, I wouldn't say tumultuous. I would say um, a, a, a bittersweet week uh, in, in the sports calendar. Uh, bittersweet, obviously, because we had March Madness finally end, right? Which, which is obviously my favorite kind of period of the sports calendar. It's, it's that first weekend of March Madness. As I've said, I think on the last probably eight episodes so far, that first weekend of March Madness is my favorite weekend uh, of the entire year. And, and just, you know, the, the one that I enjoy the most on the sports calendar that has obviously come to a close. We, we saw the championship game with UConn beating San Diego State on Monday night. Uh, UConn, obviously, they won by 16. They didn't win or they didn't they didn't have a single digit result in any of their games in, in, in the tournament so far. So uh, this this episode is going to and obviously so that sorry, didn't even got ahead of myself a little bit. What we're doing today is review of March Madness, all that was, and obviously the championship game, UConn winning, what that means for that school, for that program, uh, as well as maybe look into, look into next year a little bit for college basketball, just kind of get a preview, um, you know, just, just for kind of what we're seeing and, and who's coming back and, and that type of stuff. Uh, and then, obviously, we have what, what, turns, what turns your sadness of March Madness finishing or, you know, kind of finally being over after all those weeks of watching those great games and, you know, and, and, and all the excitement of the championship game, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of get sad on that Monday after or the Tuesday after the, the Monday night championship. And then you realize, wait, it's just two days until the Masters starts. So that's right, people. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Masters. And I think that's why that's why I love this week so much, because it's like 
you know, you, you have the final four games last Friday, you get the championship game on Monday, and then you're like, dang it, you know, the, the basketball season's over. It, it kind of was, you know, obviously as the sports calendar goes, you have the, the fall and the winter, which is kind of dominated by football, right? And then football finally ends in the middle of February, but then basketball picks right up, right? So by the time the Super Bowl is, uh, a month from the Super Bowl, almost exactly, is the first day of March Madness. So so you kind of had that month of like, okay, we got to get into basketball. There's so much basketball, and we got to, you know, ingratiate ourselves with all these teams and, and what's going on and who's going to be good and who's not. Uh, and then you get to March Madness, and obviously that's, you know, the uh, amazing three weeks um, of just, you know, crazy filled madness. You got your brackets and your and your pools and, and all your, you know, all, all the games are on pretty much all the time, it seems. And then it's kind of like once March Madness ends, you obviously have baseball that starts on April 1st every year, but – you know, baseball, eh, it is what it is. We talked about it a little bit in our previous episode. I think the results so far, at least, of the kind of the the new rule changes and everything have provided a lot more scoring. It also has decreased the average time of the game. I'm seeing about two and a half hours, which is actually shorter than they even thought the predictive metrics were showing. It would be about, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, but it's, it's, it's almost over half an hour. Um, so, so, so that's good, I think, in, in terms of, you know, how baseball is going so far. But it's the beginning of the season, right? So, you know, who knows what's going to happen. The Phillies lost in the World Series last year, and they're starting out 0-4 this year, right? Uh, but there's a very good chance they can win their division and, and, and still make it pretty far in the playoffs. So baseball's just starting. Um, and, and obviously, Obviously, we have the hockey, you know, and the NHL and NBA playoffs are going to be starting pretty soon, I think in a couple weeks here, too. So it, it, it really does that the sports calendar flows really well. And it's so funny because it's kind of like these couple weeks, like right kind of run March Madness is ending and the Masters uh, or, or and, you know, the um, you know, the the, the, the the NBA and the NHL playoffs start. You kind of have a lull, but you have the Masters right in between there. And, and so that's why I love it is because you have the Final Four, you have the championship game, you know, on one weekend. And the very next weekend, you have the Masters and everything that comes with that. So going to be doing kind of just a, a, a review of March Madness and then a preview slash, you know, what we're thinking um, of, of the Masters, just kind of, you know, kind of hitting it middle of the week here. We got, you know, we, we got the championship game over. We got the Masters coming up. And, and I think it's they're Obviously, they're both, um, you know, kind of really great fun there. So, uh, as I said, pretty much going to start off here with with UConn uh, winning the national chi- championship in college basketball. It, it's 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 almost it seems so long ago that, you know, we started this tournament and every, you know, all 64 teams were alive and you had the craziness of, you know, Furman beating UBA and, and then obviously Princeton beats Arizona. And then the next day you have Fairly Dickinson beating Purdue, uh, you know, and, and all of that seems so long ago. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it kind of is, it's, I guess, three weeks or so. But um, I think just in terms of all the basketball action that we've seen, all the great plays, all the, all the you know, the crazy last second games that we've seen, it really does seem like that was a long time ago, uh, just because, I mean, there quite literally has been like 67 games, you know, that have progressed since then. So, yeah, so I think, it, you know, it, it's really – I loved this tournament overall. I think it was it was a great – um, it, it was super entertaining. It kind of had everything you wanted, right? It had those big lower seated upsets. It, it had kind of the blue blood mentality or the, you know, the blue bloods that were in it, but, but kind of got knocked out pretty early. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, and, and I'll kind of get to that in a little bit in terms of kind of what that meant in overall grand scheme of, you know, kind of the, 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 um, you know, what, how, what, what people think of the tournament based on that, you know, as a result. So, 
overall, though, right, UConn was absolutely dominant. I mean, every single game they won by at least double digits. They had it was actually at least every game they won by well, no, er, sorry, every game they won by at least thirteen points. And that was obviously that final four game against Miami was the one game they won by thirteen points. But besides that, it was at least fifteen points uh, for every single other one of their wins. That's actually the first time that that's ever been done. Uh, there's been other teams who I, th- who I think have won all six games and won the title game uh, by double digits but not for some reason within that kind of 10 point to 13 point range it never was uh you know never never was done uh, before in terms of you know actually kind of being able to get to at least you know winning game winning every game by at least 13 points so it was it was absolutely dominant by UConn, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, they really proved that they were the best basketball team in the tournament. And you kind of started to get that feel basically as soon as you saw that first half against Gonzaga. Now, obviously, that was the Elite Eight game, right? So UConn had already beaten Iona. They beat St. Mary's. They beat Arkansas. And and all of those games were blowouts, right? And, and so you kind of saw, okay, UConn's really, you know, running away with all their games. They look dominant right now. But then again... You had Iona in the first round, which, yeah, you know, they're coached by Rick Pitino, but, you know, and actually, Iona was actually leading at halftime, which is so funny because me and Hayden ended up having UConn in our final four, which is what really helped us kind of do well in our bracket pools, um, and, and and so we're like, oh my gosh, you know, if UConn goes down in the first round, like, that would be horrible, right? Uh, and it's so funny because that's actually, I think, the one game that, that was honestly the only game where, where it looked like they might have lost, right? It was their first round game against 13 seed Iona. After that, it was it would they were in control of every single game they played. And so you kind of think about that path that they had though, right? It was Iona, okay, you know, they kind of crushed them. St. Mary's, you know, St. Mary's is all right. They have a couple of good guards, but again, they play in the WCC, the Western uh Colonial so, so, whatever, conference. <laughs> um, you know, the, it was the same conference as Gonzaga, right? But again, We've we've had our we've had our criticisms of that conference in, in past years where the stats and the predictive metrics make the teams look a lot better than they actually are. Uh, and so when they kind of get into power five competition, when it comes to playing power five teams in the NCAA tournament, you don't get that type of comp or it's, it's a completely step up a different level of competition. And, and usually those teams kind of start to fall off. So that was unfortunately what we saw with St. Mary's where they just were no match for UConn. Right. And so then UConn's in the sweet 16. Now, what do we have here? Well, you know, we have Arkansas who <laughs> they weren't expecting to see right now. Obviously I picked Arkansas in my bracket. So I saw that UConn was going to be playing Arkansas, but nobody else really did. And, and, and realistically, you know, you had Kansas, they, they won the, the championship last year. They were the, one seed this year you think okay yeah they're gonna at least you know make it pretty far well they didn't obviously Kansas won their first game and then they lost the second game to Arkansas so now you have Arkansas who's an eight seed playing UConn in the sweet 16 and and again UConn just kind of rolled over Arkansas on their way to the elite eight and then obviously we had that amazing game between Gonzaga and UCLA where Gonzaga ends up you know kind of on top and and they are then playing UConn in the elite eight for a trip to the final four and that was I think probably the least entertaining game of the entire tournament even though it was supposed to be the best game of the entire Elite Eight weekend. It, it wasn't a game at all. I mean, I mean, UConn won that game by by thirty points. Uh, they were up by close to forty at times. So you kind of think about all of that, you know, and just the the run that UConn had, even even getting to that game. You can kind of say, well, you know, they didn't really face the greatest of competition. I think that's kind of where people are going. When it comes to, you know, there's been other teams who have won the title before. There's been other teams who have even reached the Final Four before who have played better competition on their road to get there. But 
and, and I understand that, right? Like, obviously, right. You know, you, you played a 13 seed and then a five seed, then an eight seed, then a three seed, and then a, another five seed in the final four, and then another five seed in the championship game. So in, in the sense of, you know, they didn't run through the gambit. They didn't, they didn't play the, the, the best competition. That, that's just – I feel like that's a very subjective argument because, well, I think it's – you're objectifying the seed lines and determining that there's no competition level, right? Like, I think that's kind of what's going on here is, is, is you assume that the best teams – have the best or, or you know the highest seeds you know the one seeds are the best teams the two seeds are the best teams and and so for UConn a team that didn't play any any two seeds or one seeds on their route to winning a championship you know in, in most years you're probably going to have to face a one or two seed if you're not a one or two seed obviously and, and you know kind of on your route to the championship and even if you are usually you're going to meet another one or two seed uh, you know either in your own kind of you know kind of your own region there or in the final four in the championship game whatever it may be and UConn really didn't. Now, obviously, again, that's just the seed lines. That's that's. I think that's not a a very good predictive way of determining how competitive a team is or how good a team is. I I think there's a lot more that goes into determining, the you know the obviously the, the overall competitive level of what a team can do. And I think that by the kind of the the way that we saw the other games go, we could kind of tell like there's a lot more here to be desired in terms of like you know a team like Miami, right? Who beat Houston by 14 points. They were down to, to Texas with a trip to the final four on the line. They were down by 13 with like 10 minutes left. They come back and they win that game. So a team like Miami, right, they beat the four seed, the one seed, and the two seed on their way to the final four. And then they lose to K- Connecticut, UConn, in a game that it's not even competitive. So you think even the team that has that has run the, run the gauntlet, right, and, and, and faced the other top teams in their region – they, they were not even a, a, a competitive match for UConn. So you're almost kind of putting yourself in a box where it, it – and obviously you can say, okay, yeah, you know, Miami by virtue of, of winning all those games over the, over the, that, you know, that top competition and kind of expending all of their energy, maybe they were a little bit wasted. You know, they kind of, kind of lost a little bit of their juice going into that game. And obviously Miami is a team that doesn't have a, a, a huge – you know, a, a super deep bench. And so they were playing a lot of their – you know, their, their five starters were kind of who they relied on for the most part. But – I still I think that I think that that argument of UConn didn't play anybody throughout the tournament I, I don't I don't really see that as a valid argument especially because everyone they did play they beat so handily there's 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 a crazy stat out there where so Bobby Hurley is the or sorry no, Danny Hurley is the coach of UConn uh, and obviously he's you know pretty famous now because he won the championship and you know and, and everything that he did kind of during the season to get them there. His son, I don't really know what his son's name is, but there's another Hurley on the on the team, and he's actually playing basketball. Now, I'm assuming that, you know, I know it's his son, but I'm assuming that he was just a walk-on, and he wasn't really good enough to actually earn a scholarship to play on UConn. He probably wouldn't be playing on the team if his dad wasn't the coach. But, that you know, that aside, his son, Danny Hurley's son, was in the game. He played at least one minute in every single game of this tournament, which essentially means that UConn had their backups in, at the end of by the end of every single game this entire NCAA tournament I, I think that stat or just that that thought of of how everything transpired to the point where you're getting your absolute walk-ons bench players in at the very last second or you know that, that that's that's who's closing out the game for you I think that's extremely indicative of, of of just how dominant UConn was and how we can't just say that they didn't play any competition because Clearly, all the competition they did play, they blew them out of the water, right? So th- that's that's kind of where I land on. And arguably, the best team they played in Gonzaga, who you know is 
known for kind of choking in, in March Madness, but has made it to eight straight Sweet Sixteens and and have you know they've made it to I think the two of the last six championship games. Gonzaga's a great team. That was UConn's biggest win, right? So that's the kind of the other part of this is like the biggest competition they did face, which is a team in Gonzaga who had Drew Timmy and and, and Julian Strother and these guys who were really amazing basketball players. The, UCon- that was UConn's dom- most dominant victory. That was the biggest the biggest win they had the entire tournament. So it's almost like when the you know the, the better competition they faced, the better they played themselves. So so I don't buy the argument that they didn't play any competition. I think that you know their dominance and in, in the amount of points they won by every game and just the fact that really none of their games were honestly were really competitive after the kind of the you know the first half ended. They weren't trailing for a single second in the second half of, of any game this tournament. So. All around just historical stuff by UConn. Obviously, they deserve all the credit for putting together a season that they did. Uh, and then obviously kind of the postseason, you have March Madness where they, you know, they, they, they won it all. Um, to kind of to kind of address, I guess, kind of how they got here a little bit, because, again, I think that most people, at least, you know, people who are listening to this podcast probably aren't, you know, super fans of college basketball. UConn was always a good team this year. Okay, so like kind of around the November time period, and again, that was kind of the end of, or you know, the last couple weeks of the regular season in the NFL, so who the heck is paying attention to college basketball? Well, UConn was actually, they were ranked number two in the country, Purdue was number one, and it was basically like, it, it was it was a complete toss-up. It was, it was it, the, both of them were undefeated, um, right? So UConn started, I think they started 14-0, and they played all, you know, non-conference op- opponents, and they actually won all of those games by double digits, and that, that keep that in mind, because I'm going to come back to that in a little bit here, but, uh, so UConn was great, right? Now, they were unranked coming into the season, so nobody really thought they were going to be that great, but they turned out, they showed out in non-conference play, they beat Alabama, Remember that team that was the number one overall seed coming into the tournament? They were ranked number one for most of the better part of the second half of the season and going into Selection Sunday and everything. They beat Alabama by, I think, almost 20 points in a, in a non-conference game that they played earlier in the season. So you look back on that and you're like, well, dude, this is what UConn was before, you know, kind of, you know, the, the, the fall and winter time period. Like, yeah, okay, now it makes sense they won the tournament, right? Well, here's what happened was in January, they lost six out of eight games. Right. And now when you're talking January, that's when you get into your conference play. So you kind of start out, like I said, they started out 15-0 or whatever against all non, non-conference opponents. Uh, and they'd won all those games. They won all those games by double digits. And they started conference play. And once you get into conference play, the style that you play and, and, and the way that teams are able to watch film on how you run your offense and, and, and how you defend them, it's a little bit easier to dissect because you're also playing those teams multiple times throughout the season. Right. So a lot of times you're able to kind of figure out your conference opponents that, you know, the other teams that played with UConn in the big East were able to kind of figure them out a little bit. And, and they went on a very, a pretty cold streak. Honestly, I remember, I remember listening to one podcast um, that, that basically was like, you know, is UConn dead? And this was, again, this was, you know, three months ago at this point in, 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 in uh, you know, kind of the middle of January, but right. That was, that was the narrative is like, okay, UConn had, came out of the scene, you know, came, were not expected to be good at all, and, and here they are. They're unbelievably good, and, and now they're falling apart right before our very eyes. And, and that's happened, you know, plenty, uh, you know, in, in past years with other teams. But I think it was just so funny how that was kind of the narrative in in that January time frame when they had lost so many, and, and rightfully so, right? I mean, you lose six out of eight games. That's like, okay, well, everything that you had just shown us in non-conference play, despite the huge win over Alabama and, and you know, the double-digit wins in every other conference non-conference game – 
Despite that, it seems like your Big East competition here, right? Your Seton Halls of the world, your Marquettes and St. John's even beat beat UConn, I think, at UConn. So you're thinking, okay, well, you know, this is just a, a, a you know, kind of a kind of a fluke, right? It, they won all these games at the beginning of the season, and now they're losing their games. Okay, well, they're just kind of going to be a middle-of-the-pack team. And then we even saw, uh, they closed out the season pretty well, right? So they got themselves ranked again. They were inside the top 25. and But to close out the season... You know, they, they they in the Big East tournament, which is kind of, you know, what the, what's most indicative of a team that's playing the best going into March Madness. They lost in the semifinals to Marquette in a game that, you know, it was it was pretty close. It was pretty it was back and forth. Um, but Marquette kind of ran away with it in the second half. And UConn didn't look anywhere close to as dominant as they did in in any of these games in March Madness. And so you're thinking you kind of, you know, you come into uh, you come into March Madness, you're thinking, all right, well, you know, they, they, they were OK to start the season or, you know, they were really great to start the season. They had a slip up in January. They worked their way back up, you know, into the kind of the, you know, the, the, the top of the top of the, you know, rankings and everything and the conversation of teams that you know that can make a deep run into march and then you have a really kind of disappointing show in your conference tournament so you're not going into march with a full head of steam here's the one thing that stayed consistent though and, and we talked about this a lot on you know kind of our, our our you know analysis of the bracket and everything the episodes that we did a couple weeks ago was ken palm rankings right now if you're not familiar it's it's a guy named ken pomeroy who shout out to virginia tech he went to virginia tech um he developed this insane ranking system and you if you if you've kind of listened to any or read any content about college basketball, you've probably heard of Ken Palm before, but it's basically just a, a complete ranking system of it takes into consideration your offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, you know, your, 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 your pace, your tempo, your luck. Like, it's, it's literally everything. So it's, it's widely considered as the best statistical ranking of kind of the, the, all the teams in college basketball. The one thing that never changed throughout the entire season was that UConn never fell outside of the top ten. I think it was – it might have been the top six, but definitely at least the, the, the top ten in those Ken Palm rankings, right? Despite despite this team in mid-January, like I said, not even not even being ranked in the top 25, they were still inside the top ten of those Ken Palm rankings. And that's because their offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency, when you combine them with all the other stats, they were still in the top ten in the country. And 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 again, as we saw, as we said on the podcast as well, those are very predictive metrics that determine usually are very good at determining who will, you know, either make a run in March Madness or go far, have a potential, you know, their best potential to win the championship. And so I said on one of the episodes going into March Madness, the four teams that were inside, and, and the, the stat usually is, if you look at the Ken Palm ratings as a whole, right, you look at the offensive efficiency kind of you know the the column there that where you know they rank the teams from offensive efficiency and then you look at defensive efficiency as well teams that are inside the top 20 in both offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency they are usually i think they've won like 18 out of the last 19 march madness tournaments or whatever like ever since this ranking system has been developed so it's a very good predictive metric uh, for when it comes to kind of choosing who your champion will be, you know, the, 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 the team that wins the title in March Madness. And so the four teams that had that kind of, you know, that fit that model, right, the, the top 20 in offensive and defensive efficiency going into March Madness, it was obviously Alabama. They were the number one overall seed. It was Houston, who was the number two number one overall seed. Uh, it was also, it was Texas, who I had winning my bracket and, and you know, was kind of widely regarded as, you know, they, they, they could have very well gotten a number one seed as well. They beat Texas by, or they sorry, they beat Kansas by 20 in the Big 12 championship game, and, te- and Kansas still got a one seed over Texas, but, you know, here and there, whatever. So Texas was a two seed. And then you have UConn, who was the fourth team, the last team, who not did they, they didn't get a one seed, they didn't get a two seed, they didn't even get a three seed, they got a four seed. And 
obviously this was mostly based on the fact that they didn't play that really that great in their conference, you know, their conference games kind of towards, like I said, the mid January period as well as their conference tournament. So they didn't have a lot of heat going in. They weren't, they weren't really on a roll as you would say going into March madness, but they had this predictive metric kind of behind them where they fit the model of a team that usually, you know, has a better chance to win March madness. And again, that whole Ken, Ken Palm stat came true and, 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 and it was, it was, it was recognized. And you saw that in all of their games. I think that was, I mean, if you were to summarize how UConn was able to win all their games and do so well, it was because their offensive efficiency was out off the charts, right? I mean, they, every, it seemed like every shot they made went in or they'd get an offensive rebound and get another great shot opportunity and, and make that one. Right. And then obviously on the defensive end, you have, you know, Sonogo and Klingon who are, you know, they're, they're big guys who were down low blocking shots, getting rebounds. Um, and so their defense efficiency as well, you could just see in every single game they played was off the charts as well. So now looking back, hindsight 2020, UConn totally makes sense. They won the championship, right? That That's the, that's the whole funny part about doing this too, is, is looking back on the tournament that was. And yes, UConn was a four seed and, and obviously in, in a tournament that was extremely crazy where you had the final four, uh, the first final four in, in tournament history that had no one, two or three seeds and only one four seed. Well, that four seed was the one that ended up doing it and the one that ended up pulling out the title. And so obviously like i said looking back it, it's so funny because you're thinking all right well yeah that, that makes total sense matt thanks for thanks for putting that in our ears uh you know why didn't we all choose uconn to win the national championship well you know they, they were a very i think a valid a valid choice and again it's it, it was tough this year i think because you kind of had that that early success where oh and and i forgot to go back on the non-conference thing is that by the end of march madness because essentially you know in march once you get to march madness all of your games are going to be non-conference opponents as well right so six more games of non-conference opponents all beating them by, by double digits I think the the, to the tally came to that UConn went against non-conference competition during this college basketball season. They were 18-0, and they won all of their games, I think, by an average margin of like 22 points or something like that. So that just goes to show how dominant they were. And for, for, for whatever reason... Once you got to Big East play, and it's so funny because they bookended their season, right? So they started out fourteen and zero. They ended six and zero and winning the title in that middle period of of kind of that those like twenty games in the middle there. They didn't they didn't play that well. They were basically five hundred, right? They lost to teams like like Seton Hall and St. John's, and and you know obviously once you get into conference play, like I said, it's a it's much more of a grind. It, you're in the middle of the season. You're playing teams that you're going to play multiple times throughout the season. So sometimes you're not going to be bringing your best, uh, you know, in terms of your you know your adrenaline's pumping and everything ready for the game. So I think that you know just kind of looking at what happened. It wouldn't be super easy to see that UConn, you know, going into March Madness would be, a, 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 you know, the overwhelming pick to win the, the championship. Obviously, Alabama and Houston fit that model of being inside the top 20 offensive and defensive efficiency. That makes sense. And they also had come into the tournament on fire. Alabama, you know, they won the regular season uh, SEC. They won the SEC conference tournament. Houston. They won the regular season, the AAC. Uh, they lost the conference championship to Memphis, but they didn't have their best player in uh, in Marcus Sasser, so they got him back healthy for the tournament, and you know they're ready to go. So those were the two teams that people picked most to win the championship, and I would have agreed. Obviously, I picked Texas just so I could kind of you know just in case there was some kind of t some 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 craziness at the top there, I kind of you know would would have been able to. To, to benefit from, you know, some craziness going on and, and, and maybe, you know, Texas would be able to pull it out. But 
wouldn't blame anybody who picked Alabama and Houston because they fit that metric and they were one seeds and they had the easiest, theoretically, the easiest road to the final four. And obviously, really, none of that happened. Um, and, and so we went over, obviously, kind of shouting out Florida Atlantic, you know, an amazing victory over Kansas State that put them in the final four. San Diego State, obviously, you know, they beat Creighton in, in the Elite Eight, but they beat Alabama, who was the number one overall seed and, and you know, showed why they were able to do so, uh, obviously making their their way to, to, the, to the final, to the title game, in which they obviously eventually lost to UConn, and then I kind of already went over Miami, you know, how kind of how great they played. The one, I guess, to kind of wrap this segment up and just kind of put a bow on it, um, two things. The first is the March Madness Commandments, which we had kind of, we had kind of, <laughs> it's funny because on the, on the bracket analysis episode that we did, the kind of the final one before March Madness started, I kind of had put, to, put together a, a, a kind of a, a um, like a, like a small list of kind of just running theories that I had in my head about things that, you know, in the past had, had kind of served well. And then pretty much as we got to the Sweet 16, I was like, oh, my gosh, this thing is like, this thing is awesome, right? For in terms of, you know, you're right, like I said, your, your, your top 20 in Ken Palm ratings, your guard play, I think, is, you know, for, for being a consistently good team, um, as well as, you know, not, not winning your conference tournament, which many people think is probably the, you know, the best thing to be doing. Really, you honestly want to not win your conference tournament because then you get more rest and you're, you know, you're more ready for March Madness. So all of those things kind of ended up coming true. Um, and it's so funny how well those worked. So shout out to the March Madness commandments. Me and Hayden will definitely get a a uh we'll 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 get our noah's ark worth of well that's a never mind the holy grail i think is what contains the ten commandments um so we'll get our holy grail together we'll we'll nail it down for next year we'll be totally ready to give out our our bracket pits picks based on those ten commandments um because i think that you know at the end of the day that seems to be working right and and so you know when it worked again this year the second thing just to completely wrap up this segment right here is to give a shout out to hayden that's right Hayden Vozar, my brother and the co-host of this podcast, uh, which I, I usually I never want to give him credit. I never really shout him out. I mean, he's my brother. You know, we we love each other. But there's there's always there's always something that you want to get a leg up on. Uh, you know, on, on on your siblings, right? Hayden did it though in one of his now again, and we, and we said this, you know, before March Madness started too. ESPN makes you or lets you allows you to. We consider it makes you. Um, Make, you can make up to 25 brackets on ESPN's like website, right? And if you fill out all 25 brackets, you're entered in some contest or whatever. But anyway, I only do it because I just love to see the the, the crazy random combinations that we can come up with to see just what ends up happening and who ends up being kind of most right to have the best bracket and everything like that. Well, Hayden, somehow or another, actually had a bracket. One of his 25 brackets, the most random, you know, of, of all the brackets that, you know, that we could have made and, and everything that was going on there – Hayden actually had a bracket in which he had UConn beating San Diego State in the title game, and he and he got everything right. He got the he got San Diego State in the championship game. He got UConn in the championship game, and he got UConn beating San Diego State. So somehow Hayden was able to tell the future, and and that might take the cake for like our our best call when it comes to you know the randomness of just creating all twenty five brackets and seeing which one can come out on top. Because you think right now, oh, if I have a chance to to make twenty five of these things, then I'll, I'll have to get something right, right? Like I'll. I'll I'll do something right uh, along the way, right? So last year I had a bracket where I got three out of the four final four teams correct. But again, that was, you know, you, you obviously 
you had Kansas who won it all. Kansas was a one seed and they were in the final four. Villanova was a two seed and they were in the final four. Um, Duke was a two seed and they were in the final four. And then North Carolina, who was an eight seed, right, who really nobody saw coming. But if you're thinking about that, okay, yeah, if you make 25 brackets, you're going to be at least picking two two seeds and a one seed to make to make the final four in at least one of your brackets. That's not that hard to do. But in a year like this, where for the first time in, in, in conference, in, you know, NCAA basketball history, we had a tournament in which the final four teams were not made up or there were no no one, two, or three seeds in the final four. Hayden was able to do it. He called the championship game. He got and, and that that's at that point, like that's even harder because like at this point, yeah, okay, cool. The final four is the final four. It's like the biggest, you know, kind of combination of teams, whatever. But picking the teams to then win those games correctly and then pick the team to win the championship game correctly, like it, it really speaks to just kind of the randomness that happened this year and, and that Hayden had a lot of foresight uh, into, into just, I guess, knowing what would happen. So his bracket ended up coming in like 3,000th place uh, out of 20 million brackets. So I think that's a, that's a pretty, good, pretty good percentile for, for our boy there. Um, but, yeah, so shout out to Hayden. Um, that, that, that bracket will probably go on to live in infamy. Um, and, and, and really, yeah, I mean, I, I had UConn winning one bracket. I think he had UConn winning one bracket, and that was the one that there was. He also had San Diego State winning the championship in another bracket. So even if San Diego State had won, he still would have gotten that one correct, and he probably would have had an insane bracket ending in that one too. So I think just the, the overall uh, – the, the confidence in San Diego State that I did not have, I thought Charleston was going to win that game in the first round of the, first round of the tournament – Hayden saw it. Hayden for somehow, somehow was able to, 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 to know that San Diego State would make this run. So shout out to Hayden for that. And next we have the Masters, which is this week. It's the most glamorous, most uh, pretty and beautiful and kept and every adjective that denotes positivity that you can imagine. Golf tournament of the year. It's the only major tournament which is played at the same venue each year. It's a tournament that is... Uh, I just um, I, I I'm I'm lost for words. It's it's the it's the mother of all uh, golf tournaments. You are in glorified into the history of the golf annals when uh, you're able to come away with a winner uh, of the green jacket at the Masters tournament. Uh, and and so that's that's happening this week. Um, it it kind of came up fast. I will say normally I'm a little bit more. I mean, I'm always into golf because I'm, I'm a huge golf fan. I, I bet on golf a lot, which is really the only reason I am a fan. I uh, probably wouldn't watch it otherwise. But uh, it, it does, like I said, it does seem like it kind of came up quickly now. That maybe because I think this year I was I was really, really super locked into March Madness, where sometimes I'm not as not as into it as I normally am. Or, or I'm just kind of – mostly because I won my bracket pool this year. I'm usually out of my bracket pool by the first weekend. So I'm kind of like, ah, whatever. I don't even care who, who wins March Madness. Let me just focus on over to, to, to the Masters since I have no shot at this March Madness thing. No, but this year, seriously, I, I like I said, I, I think it kind of – it comes up quickly on you. Uh, especially, too, because the championship game for for March Madness is on Monday and the Masters tournament starts on Thursday. So you got about I – mean, you got less than three days in between kind of the, the, the end of March Madness and the start of the Masters. And, and you got to you know, get in all your content content all your who you're going to be betting on here who you're going to be watching for all that stuff obviously thursday is the start of the masters tournament there's two rounds thursday and friday then there's the cut and then there's two more rounds saturday and sunday until the tournament finally ends on sunday so there's a lot of golf to be played between thursday and sunday and most people probably aren't locked in and sitting down and, and watching the masters you know right, right from right from the jump on thursday morning uh and so and obviously a lot can change right so the the person who 
leads after Thursday is is most likely not going to win. Now at the mat, I guess at this tournament. You, you do want to be close to the top of the leaderboard, uh, especially after Thursday, because it's, it's so hard to come back at a tournament like this because you, you can't really go after it as much. Uh, you can't you know, your 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 t- the, the shots that you take a chance on to kind of get closer to the pin. Those are going to end up kind of, you know, making you making you making you pay a little bit. So. In terms of, you know, who's going to be leading after Thursday, it probably isn't going to be who ends up actually winning the tournament, but it is a, a, usually a good or at least a better tell of who might be towards the top of the leaderboard come Sunday with a chance to win the tournament than, you know, some of the other uh, events on the PGA Tour. So this year, though, is, is, is different, right? Because this is the first year that we have both the PGA Tour as well as the Live Tour kind of coming together as one for this one golf tournament. Typically, well, not even typically, but as ever since the 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 whole Live Tour started, which I think was I mean it was actually it was it was actually kind of not too long after the Masters last year where the whole Live thing kind of came into play and and all the golfers started leaving. The first Live event, I don't think it was until uh, the beginning of June last year, but again, that's almost I mean that's about 10 months ago at this point. So it is still a little while ago. But like I said, ever since then, the the live players and the PGA Tour players have been separate for basically all of the events, all of the golf that they've played. Uh, and and obviously, the biggest storyline with this is that you you had a bunch of golfers who a lot of them who are kind of the better you know golfers on the PGA Tour leave for 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 live golf. That, I mean, you know, obviously Phil Mickelson is 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 probably the biggest star among them. He he's not the best golfer anymore, but we have uh you know, obviously Dustin Johnson who's won his fair share of major championships as well as regular tournaments on the uh, on the PGA Tour. We have Brooks Kepka who is one of four people in the Masters tournament this year who has won at least four majors. It's only it's only Tiger, Phil, uh, Rory McIlroy and Brooks Kepka. So so Kepka's on the on the live tour. You have Cam Smith, who kind of came on in the last couple of years as, oh, you know, he's a pretty good rising star. And then last year he broke out. He won the Players' Championship and won like four million bucks from that. He won the Open at, at St. Andrews last year, last uh, you know, the, towards the end of last summer. So Cam Smith is on the live tour now, right? You have, you know, kind of your, you know, your Patrick Reed, right? Patrick Reed has won a Masters before. Sergio Garcia has won a Masters before. And these are, you know, those are guys who are all on the live tour as well. So there's a lot of names who you probably haven't also you probably haven't heard of in a while in terms of guys who are winning tournaments especially because that that talent pool that we had in the PGA Tour is now almost cut in half and there's a lot more guys in the PGA Tour now who were really kind of towards the bottom before who have kind of you know gotten up to the middle group you know closer to the top now that a lot of these guys these you know these these top PGA Tour professionals have now moved over to the live uh, to the live tour but again, for the majors, and this was like I think probably a a good a, a good effort by the golf community uh, to essentially say that for all the major tournaments, there's not going to be qualifications based on PGA Tour success or whatnot, right? Because mostly because the the four golf majors are are independent from the PGA Tour itself. It would seem natural that because the PGA Tour is the professional golf association and and all the professional golfers are going to be a part of this of this league of this tour uh, you know the, the pga it still is the, the majors are outside of technically the the professional golf association simply because for, really, really for this reason but because they're not events on the pga tour season now the pga tour has its own kind of 
playoff championship format, uh, you know, which, which kind of it, it, it and now it's near the end of the golf season. I think it's the you know the last couple of weeks in August, first week, and I think in September, um, because that the, the the way that works is a, that's the FedEx Cup, right? So if you haven't heard of the FedEx Cup, it's it's the it's the end of the PGA Tour season. It's you know based on the tournaments that you've won or the points, the FedEx points that you've accrued throughout the season, and that's just earned by you know where you've placed in the events, uh, you know during that season. You earn a certain amount of points, and then if you have a certain amount of points, you're you're in the top seventy five of the of the you know FedEx Cup point standings. Then you make the FedEx Cup playoffs, and then you play three more tournaments after that. And then you know the the person who has the most points going into the final round, which is called the Tour Championship, they are granted a like four shot lead over the rest of the field, and they're able to have a better chance at winning the the the, the PGA Tour Championship, right? So that's at the end of the summer, though. That's that's after all of the majors, and that's separate from all of the majors because all of the majors have their own like their own representatives, their own, the people who are like the PGA championship has its own whole team of people who, who runs the PGA tour champion or the PGA championship by itself, the U S open the same way they're running their own show. And that's also why you see a lot of these venues change every year. Right? So, you know, the U S open, hasn't been at the same course, I think, you know, like twice in a row, I think ever. Um, PGA Championship, same year. Last year it was in Oklahoma, right? This year it's in it's in LA, LA Country Club. So, you know, you're gonna have a lot of a lot of these a lot of these venues are gonna be switching over the years, and that's where you kind of get to okay, the you know, these these major championships are kind of the 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 main thing on the season of the PGA tour. Um, but obviously you have, you know, a lot of the like the, the smaller PGA tour events are 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 the actual golfers that are members of the PGA Tour are participating in those golf events and they could earn tickets or you know entries into the the, the major tournaments uh, but that's not guaranteed and that's what we see especially with the Masters it's it's the most selective of the golf majors in terms of who's able to play and I think now and again forgive me I'm, I'm not going to get all these correct but I know that Obviously, if you win a Masters tournament, you are guaranteed acceptance into the Masters. Every Masters tournament that you can play in from for the rest of your life, you are guaranteed acceptance in, which, again, makes it, you know, super exclusive and all that, whatever. Um, I think the other stipulation is if you have a win on the PGA Tour. So I hope that makes sense uh, after a 10-minute explanation about how the PGA Tour works. <laughs> but, um, but, right, that the biggest story coming into this Masters is the fact that you have the Live Tour players and the PGA Tour players playing in the same tournament for the first time since Live became a thing. Now, obviously, in general, Live was a huge thing when it was first announced and all of these players came out and they're like, yeah, we're going to go over there and play. We think that it's best for our careers. We're going to... And they were dancing around the fact that they were just going to be making oodles of more money, uh, which is fine. So, you know, you, you do what you do. I'm not going to judge anybody for that. Uh, so so here's the deal, right, is, is how are the Live players going to kind of fair when it comes to the PGA tour players who have played a regular season. And that's the, that's kind of the, the, the crux of the issue here is the live players have not played, I think even half the amount of rounds, half the golf in general this year that the PGA tour players have. Uh, and so you're kind of questioning how ready are these live players as compared to the PGA tour players who have had, you know, all of these kind of, you know, these, these tournaments in, you know, so far this year that have kind of prepared them for this year's tournament. So how is that going to go? I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you, but I'm, I'm bringing it up so that you know that, you know, that's kind of one of the dynamics that's going to be at play here. Uh, additionally, there's going to be some weather folks. And we always hate to hear it when it's golf. Cause 
I mean, it's, you know, it's golf. You can't really play in the rain. Uh, there is supposed to be significant weather uh, things that are going on this weekend, particularly the rain, like I just said. Um, Thursday is supposed to be okay. That's the first round of the tournament. Friday, I think it. I think it's, it's like 50% chance of rain or something like that. Saturday, though, is going to be the worst day, like 90% chance of rain, I think, almost all day, which is the other thing, too, because these guys, some of the guys will start, you know, they'll tee off at 6 a.m. Some other guys won't start until 2 p.m., right? So you kind of have so much time in between them that, hey, one guy could get his full round in where another guy hasn't even started his yet. So Saturday is going to be the most interesting just because you're not going to know who's starting when. You're not even going to know if any of these guys are going to get out on the, on the uh, on, on, you know, to be able to play. So... More than like, and then Sunday too. I think even Sunday, it's they're supposed to rain too. I don't know if the exact percentages. I think it's like you know fifty or seventy, but um, so not as much as Saturday, but also supposed to rain Sunday. So then you start to think, okay, well, how is that going to affect, you know, how how the tournament is played? And honestly, I can tell you that I'm pretty sure what's going to end up happening is the tournament's not going to finish till Monday, possibly Tuesday. It's never gone to a Tuesday finish, but. We've had plenty of Monday finishes before, uh, the most recent being, I think, last July, the Northern Trust. Uh, Tony Finau ended up winning it. I, I can't remember who he, I think he played um, – I think it was Wills out. No, it wasn't Wills out. I'm, I'm not going to remember. Whatever. Tony Finau won the Northern Trust, but it was in a playoff, and it was on the last day. It was on a Monday. Uh, so, so that was the last Monday finish that we had, and – it's so funny because you usually go into the weekend or really any golf tournament saying, okay, you know, yeah, it looks like there's some rain, uh, you know, but, but they'll usually be able to play it because that's the thing too is normally the normal hours for this type of thing is, you know, you start early. Okay. You start, you know, 6am, 7am or whatever. Uh, and, and usually you're done by five or six at, at night. Now, obviously with the summer hours and kind of, you know, daylight savings and everything, you're able to stay out there longer. So a lot of times what they'll do is like, okay, if there has been some rain, then we're going to move everybody, you know, further up or further back, uh, you know, kind of further into the night. That way you're able to get as much golf in as possible to, to prevent a Monday finish because that's what you don't want to see, especially this year. It's Easter, right? Easter Sunday is the last day of the Masters. You know, it, it always kind of is, is your is your send-off into, like I said, kind of the, the, the couple weeks of the year before the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs start. Uh, nobody wants a Monday finish. Well, I kind of do. I'd love to see as much golf as I possibly can, right? Uh, especially, too, with how the rain affects the golf course and how the players – play the course. I'm going to get to end a little bit more uh, just after this. But, but yeah, I did want to say that I think that normally weather isn't a problem. Even if it is, they're usually able to work around it and make it work. Uh, but this, this, this year, for whatever reason, pretty much is the only year that I've ever had, I've ever heard, like, you know, all the articles I'm reading, all the podcasts that I'm listening to, everybody's like, yeah, it's basically guaranteed to have a Monday finish. Obviously, on the other hand, it's weather, and you can never predict what weather's going to do. So, it can be bright and shiny and there can be double rainbows in the sky for all I care the entire weekend and nothing is ever affected. And we have a perfect Sunday finish on Easter and it's, it's all great and, and, you know, happy go lucky, but probably not. <laughs> uh, in which case, again, like I said, I think it would be awesome to see these guys really struggle and just kind of get, get, get through it there. Uh, so, so that's going to be a big interesting story as to kind of how, how it's going to work in terms of when we're actually going to be able to play the golf as well as finish the golf, which, like I said, might not be uh, till Monday. How does the rain, how does the course get affected by the rain? Uh, honestly, for, on the player side, it makes the course easier to play. Now, the reason for that is because normally with the Masters, the reason it's so hard is because the, the, the grass is cut so short 
right? And it's and it's and it's Bermuda grass, so it the ball hits the grass and it rolls and it goes forever and ever. And you always see that, like the the guys who fall apart, the masters are the guys who are you know they have a three foot putt and they just miss it by a couple inches and then it's it's like you know a, 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 a snowball avalanche going down you know going down forty feet with worth of green. You're back onto the rough and you're chipping out for for double bogey. All right, it's it usually that's how it's played. Now, when it rains, what happens is it, you know, obviously the ground is very moist. And so the ball is not able to roll as fast or as easily as it does when the ground is firm and, and hard and not wet. So the the interesting part about the whole rain scenario with, you know, as, at least pertaining to this specific Augusta Masters is that it, the rain, you know, having the, the, you know, having it soaked up and everything is, is going to make the course play a little bit softer. Now, the other thing with Augusta National specifically is that they have what's called sub air underneath the golf course. Most, most golf courses have sub air underneath the greens, right? So that, okay, you can, you know, you, you don't have to pay for the sub. Well, let me just explain what sub air first. Basically, it's just a bunch of fans that are underneath the golf course that, soak up the moisture, right? So that you're not playing in a big mud fest out there. They're, they're going to tend to the fairways and the greens as much as possible. But if it's, I mean, if it's, if, if it's pouring two inches of rain, you're not gonna be able to stop that unless you have some sort of force to counteract that below it. So that's what the sub air does is it, is it basically dries out the golf course by, you know, making it less, uh, you know, kind of taking the moisture out of the course. Uh, that can only work too much, though, because if you have that much rain on there, it'll be playable, right? So it's not going to be a big mud bowl. But at the same time, it's not going to roll just as easily and as fast and everything as if there had been no rain on the course at all. So because of that, it's going to make it a little bit easier for players to score. And the reasoning for that, like I said, is because at Augusta specifically, like it's it's so tough to hit the holes in general that like you almost have to get so lucky because even if you have a perfect shot like let's say you got an iron shot from 225 yards and you nail it to within 5 feet well if you have just the just like the 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 littlest bit of extra speed on it it's gone right or if you don't have enough speed on it it can roll down the other way and now you're shooting up for you know for for a chance uh at would have been your birdie and now you're now you're kind of going to be lucky to get out of there with par so that's kind of the 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 the, the, the toughest part about Augusta, however, like I said, when it rains, if you nail those shots, which a lot of these guys are so good at, you know, nailing these birdie, nailing these iron shots to within like you know four or five feet of the pin, it's not going to roll as much. So it's going to the ball placement is going to be a little bit easier, or at least the ball is going to stay in the same place that you're aiming it to more so than it normally would. Uh, which again, like I said, is an advantage to some players and not others. Um, I would say that. You know, overall, it, it helps because the ball's just staying in, in in the same place for most of the most of the golfers. But again, like I said, you also get wind with this rain. You also get you know other conditions that a lot of these golfers are not used to playing in because for the most part, you know, the most the places they go, it's you know it's California, Florida, Texas, places that don't get a lot of rain all the time and and, and are usually sunny and warm. Those are the types of conditions that the golf tournaments are played at. And normally, like I said, Augusta is the same way. It's warm and sunny and it's and it's beautiful. Uh, but when you have a situation like this year where, like I said, it's going to be windy, it's going to be rainy, you're going to look to, you know, the golfers that succeed in those types of environments are, are going to have the advantage. And so, you know, guys like Justin Thomas, who is an amazing golfer, he won the PGA Championship in that Oklahoma, you know, Tulsa uh, at Southern Hills last year. 
he's he doesn't usually play play that well in the wind and rain, so he might not be doing that well as we come into the weekend. Obviously, you know, on a Thursday, he might go out and shoot a 65. Okay, great. But, you know, on the weekend when we're dealing with the wind and the rain, he might not be doing as great as other golfers who are more used to that, like a Shane Lowry, like, like a Justin Rose, guys who play in Europe and England and Ireland where that's kind of the weather all the time, right, is windy and rainy. Uh, they're more used to stuff like that. Max Homa even, I mean, he's not – Irish or, or English, but you know, there was a tournament last year. The Wells Fargo was played at Potomac Mills in Maryland. Uh, Max Homa basically kind of came out and stuck it under Keegan Bradley's nose and said, "Hey, I'm taking this tournament from you." Uh, he was wearing a, a, like basically a, 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 a rain jacket out on the course in his final his final round there on Sunday. So he's used to playing. He's good at playing in the wind and the rain. A lot of the Australian guys, right? So your your Cam Smiths, your your Adam Scott. Adam Scott's actually won a, a, a Masters before. Cam Smith, as I mentioned, was amazing last year, and, and he's been playing well on the Live Tour so far. Because Australia has so much wind, they're just used to playing in the wind, so it's it's better for Australian golfers. Uh, like I said, that could kind of change the scope of what we're looking at here uh, in terms of who's going to kind of do the best, right? So other golfers, though, you're kind of looking towards, well, I guess the bigger stories. Like I said, the big three – it, and well, and I guess we'll get into a little bit of betting talk here, and just kind of who you know who who can have a shot to win your big three, right? It's Scotty Scheffler who won last year's Masters and has won, I think, I think probably six tournaments in the last year calendar year, uh, or maybe 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 let's give it let's give it fifteen months. Um, you have John Rahm who was has been the probably. The, the, the longest standing world number one ranked golfer for the past, you know, four or five years. And then Rory McIlroy, who has been one of the top players for more than longer than any of those guys have been even been on the tour. Uh, the interesting thing about Rory McIlroy this year is that, well, in the past nine years, um, he ha- he is going for the career game Grand Slam, which is essentially when you win all four majors on the PGA Tour. not or Sorry, not on the PGA Tour, but all four majors in a golf season. Or not in the golf season. Sorry, I'm getting myself all messed up here. I'm too excited. <laughs> you win. It's winning all four golf majors at some point in your career, right? It doesn't have to be in the same year. It doesn't have to be – you can have two in one year and then two in, you know, ten years from now. Whatever. At least winning all four of the majors at least once in your entire golf career is called the career grand slam. Rory McIlroy was so good so long ago that he had won all three of – well, three of the majors besides the Masters – by I think 10 years ago at this point so this is his ninth attempt for going for the career grand slam the one tournament that he has to one mass major that he has yet to win is the masters right uh which is kind of kind of sucks because it's like like I said to begin the segment you know probably the biggest most important you know most famous most cherished uh one you know major tournament of all of golf and McElroy hasn't done it. So he's going to have a lot of pressure on him to win his first Masters, which would you know complete the career Grand Slam. This is the ninth time that he's gone into the Masters having that same chance, though, right? And that's the thing is that to a certain extent, at a certain point, it kind of gets to the point where he's going to be in his head about it. He's going to be thinking a little too hard about it. If he has a chance to win it going into Sunday, that's what's going to be on his mind. So – Instead of just playing loose and, and, and playing golf like it should be and, and, you know, you're one of the best players in the world, just go out there and do it. He's going to have all the pressure of I have to do this. I have to win this. This is the this is my career on the line. And, and, and so I think that can really kind of deteriorate your performance based on, you know, what, you know, how you're playing that day and, and maybe what you're going to be doing for the rest of the weekend. So we're looking for that for Rory McIlroy. Um, like I said, those three are the big favorites. Uh, pretty much everyone else behind them, I think, you know, they're all less than 10 to 1 as it, as it, as it pertains to the betting lines. Um, I think Jordan Spieth was the fourth favorite. 
and he was at like 16 to 1. So you can see a pretty big jump in, in how the favorites go according to kind of the big three, like I said, Rom, uh, Scheffler, and McElroy, uh, down to kind of the, your next favorites, which is um, I think Spieth, uh, Cantlay was up there, and um, and Justin Thomas, and, and, and guys like that. So the only other thing, though, is the guys that tend to win the Masters are the guys that are the best at everything not only the best at everything, like, around, like, you know, shots gained off the tee, shots gained approach, shot, you know, you're around the green, you're scrambling, you're putting, you're, you know, you're ball striking. You kind of have to be good at everything, but you also have to have experience at the Masters. I think the last time that there's been a first-time winner, like, the, like the, the person who's played in their first Masters and won it in the same year, it was, like, in the 70s, right? So this is, I mean, this is 50 years ago we're talking about. So the normally the guys who win the tournament are the guys who have played in the Masters before because, like I said, it's the only major tournament that has played the same venue each year. The more times you play at it, the more experience you get, the more of the chance that you're going to be able to, you know, kind of really crack this course and be able to win. There's a reason why Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson have won so many times because – they played it so many times, right? They've had that many chances to do it, and they've been able to conquer the course. So we're looking for guys who have played here before, and we're looking for guys who really kind of have an all-around great game. The The interesting part about that is when you're betting golf, you're looking for the guys who can come out of nowhere and win a tournament, right? A hundred to one. You put a, you put one dollar on the guy, and you win a hundred dollars because he won a tournament. It, that's probably not going to happen at the Masters. That's the, this is the one tournament where it doesn't happen because, like I said, you have to have that combination of every part of your game is good. Your long irons, your short irons, your approach game, your wedge game, all of that has to be good in tandem with, like I said, your ball striking, your driving accuracy, your around the green game, your scrambling, and your putting. You have to be good at everything. And so there's a reason why the favorites tend to do well at the Masters. I'm not saying go out and bet McElroy, Scheffler, and Rom. I'm just saying that don't be surprised when they're kind of your top guys going into the weekend when normally in a lot of other, even other majors, right, the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, a lot of those other majors will have guys who, hey, 50-1, to 75-1, to 1, you know, guys who they, nobody thought they had a shot coming into the weekend, hey, they're here and they're contending, right, because the, the, the venue isn't the same every year. The course isn't as hard every year. The courses, because they're different, they fit certain guys' you know tendencies a little bit differently as well, which lends uh, your you know your, itself to kind of there there being different champions. Guys who may not have been a favorite going into the week has a good chance to win it. That being said, I think it's kind of going to you know remain the same this year. I think it, you're you're going to get a guy who's kind of near the top, right? Even I mean even guys like Tony Finau. Uh, you know who who have you know he's won I think three times uh, since the last since the last Masters happened. Max Homa I already mentioned he's won a bunch of times on tour I think uh, you know coming into this tournament so he's feeling really good about himself. Um, you have a guy like Victor Hovland who was really it's the, the 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 narrative about him has been he's he's able to win tournaments where there's not a lot of players but he hasn't really been in contention in any of these majors can he finally do well and the finally the, the time he did do it was last year at the open championship at st andrews he wasn't able to close the deal though i think he came in fourth or fifth place is he going to be able to kind of do it this year his game he's an amazing ball striker his long iron short hands are always there but his his around the green game his you know out of the bunkers he's terrible his putting is bad right so can he get that that part of his game to kind of link up with the rest of his game and you know he'll be able to win the tournament we'll, we'll, we'll just have to see I think but it'll be really interesting to see who wins the tournament I think like I said it's going to be a guy who's near the top of the board it's not going to be one of your long shots who has no chance to win um the other thing too like I said is going to be 
interesting to see how the live guys do in comparison to the PGA Tour guys. I think it's going to be very telling if we have a top 10 where none of the live guys are even close to the top 10 or even, you know, inside that kind of first page of the of, of the leaderboard when we're coming in here on Sunday. Whereas, you know, hey, maybe the live guys kind of come out and they do they do great, right? Despite playing a lot less golf as the other guys, the PGA Tour guys, maybe they play out and they come out and they play great and they show, hey, you know, the, the, the live tour is doing just fine for us, right? So that's going to be, I think, the most interesting dynamic. Obviously, I don't think it's going to, I mean, I, I think it's going to be talked about after the fact, but it will only kind of depend on the, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the effect that we see it have on the tournament and who, you know, what players end up kind of coming towards the top uh, and stuff like that. So... That's the Masters preview. Um, I did about 30 minutes on each and 30 minutes on the on on, on, on UConn winning the championship and, and kind of stuff to look out for. Oh, I didn't do a, a preview of next year's college basketball. Well, basically, Kentucky is 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 back at it. John Calipari bringing in four of the top 10 recruits for, for that Kentucky class next year. But UConn's bringing almost everyone back. Jordan Hawkins, their, their, their lethal three-point shooter, he's going to be leaving for the NBA, but everybody's going to come back. So UConn's probably going to be the favorite to win it all next year. Marquette is bringing back everyone, too. They're in the Big East as well, so the Big East is going to be a very, very contentious league. Uh, Duke is bringing back everyone, I think, except um, – trying to think. I think everyone – I think, yeah, because Tyrese Proctor said he's coming back. Um, um, Jeremy Roach is coming back. I wonder if Andrew Filipowski, their big man, is going to come back. So, you know, we'll kind of have to see there. But Duke – I think Duke is the favorites to win next year's uh, championship. Kentucky is second, and then I think UConn's third. Um, but yeah, so, so it'll be interesting to see kind of what we get for next year. I think Florida Atlantic's bringing back everyone too. So that's going to be a fun story. They're kind of a mid major, but they're going to be ranked like number five to start the season. They're going to be pretty much have, you know, their whole team back who won, you know, 35 games or whatever it was, uh, this season. So, so I'm excited to see what college basketball has to bring next year. And I think it's going to be cool because a lot of the teams that made it really far this year, San Diego state, same thing, same thing. There's not a lot of NBA talent, which I think is, is different than a lot of the final fours and championships and kind of the, you know, the March madnesses that we do see is the stars bring it up. The stars make it. The stars leave for the NBA. That didn't really happen this year. So you have a lot of the teams that made it far, made you know deep runs in this tournament. There's not a lot of NBA talent on those teams, and so a lot of the other guys are going to want to come back, not only to you know kind of you know get their revenge and and, and really make a, a deep run in March Madness again, but also to hey hey we made a deep run last year, we made a name for ourselves. Let's go out there and do it again, and then hopefully you know kind of make our name or make a name for ourselves when it comes to the draft talk and being drafted to the NBA. So um, I think it's going to be. I think the landscape is changing in college basketball. Um, obviously, the transfer portal and NIL have a, have a bunch to do with it, but senior-led teams that with good guard play is really the key to it all. And we saw that you know play out this year, and I think that that's only going to continue. So. I really look forward to kind of seeing what's going to happen next year when a lot of the players that we got to know in this year's uh, March Madness are going to be back next year and making another run potentially for March Madness. So uh, I'm really excited for it. I'm, 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 I'm really excited to kind of see what the changes are bringing to college basketball and how we're going to kind of have an older game, you know, than we, than we used to with a lot of older players kind of sticking around uh, and, and, and running it back, right, for another year. So, um, yeah, so that does it. That's an hour. Uh, hope you really enjoyed it. If, if you did, uh, please listen to it. Please download. Please Please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because uh, that will really help us get noticed. And, and again, that's that's really what we're trying to do here is obviously give you guys give you guys the content, but we want to we want to branch out. We want to get want to get our content seen and heard by by people who don't always listen to the first down rundown podcast. Um, so so yeah, so so please leave a rating and review and, and subscribe if you haven't already. We appreciate everyone who's listening to this. It's not many of you, believe me, I know it's not that many, but uh, but that's we're here to grow. That's that's what we're trying to do. Um, 
I am moving this weekend. So as this podcast comes out a couple days after, I am going to be moving. Uh, I will have my own space. I will be. I, ha- I will have a desk and a computer with me at all times. So we're gonna get the, we're gonna get back on track. All right, we're gonna get back to two episodes a week. Whether that's you know me and Hayden doing a combined episode two times a week, whether it's Hayden and me doing one big episode, we're break, breaking it up into two episodes and, and kind of putting those out. Whether it's me and Hayden doing you know maybe an hour long episode early in the week and then me you know separately doing a 30 45 minute episode later in the week i'm gonna take control of the twitter i'm gonna get that rolling again so we're really gonna start producing a lot of content here because this is my passion i love doing this and i've basically been living out of my parents house and and back and forth because because i lived an hour away from where i worked and so it's it's, it's been it's been a huge uh a, a huge hustle and bustle for the last year or so and, and we're finally going to be getting down to one location, you know, sitting down and, and really settling in. So I'm really excited for that, uh, which will definitely mean more content and, and just more discussions and, 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 and calls and, and podcasts and everything all around for you guys. Look out for the next episode. Like I said, it's going to be next week, probably early next week, maybe, maybe Monday or Tuesday, going to be going over what happened at the Masters, obviously. Um, We'll probably have to wait till Tuesday, like I said, because they're going to be a, probably going to be a Monday championship uh, for for when the Masters is going to end. So we'll probably record Tuesday, get a good a good Masters review of what everything that happened this weekend. In uh, Hayden will be back, like I said, uh, and then we're gonna we're gonna do our NFL talk. We're gonna talk Lamar. We're gonna talk Aaron Rodgers. So stay tuned for all of that. Thank you guys again so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day.